people who rebelled against its maker. And he came running after us in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that love doesn't stop with the losses of this life. This, that love doesn't stop with the losses of a football game. Just to give some perspective. And that love doesn't stop even with the loss of life. Because his love is everlasting. And Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, even though he dies, yet shall he live. We have life in him. That's why we're here today. Before I keep going here, though, I'd like to dismiss children for Children's Church. That's ages 4 through 1st grade, and you can go out the north door. And follow the Denny clan there. So fantastic. So, I don't know what your aspirations are for this year as far as reading the Scriptures. I hope it's to, to be in God's Word every day. But if you're like me, perhaps sometimes you'll look in it and kind of go, what did that look like? How did that happen? What exactly is happening here? Maybe, maybe even you think at the beginning in creation, when God spoke creation into being, what did that look like? Was it a literal six days? What, how did the dinosaurs fit into that? What, what did that look like? And then you go a little bit later into Genesis, I believe it's chapter 6. And it says, you know, the sons, the daughters of men, and the, and the sons of God, that the sons of God married the daughters of men. Were those men who married women? Or were they angels of some sort because they produce these these nephilim these big these supermen how, how does that work out and then you a little bit longer you get into the story of abraham and he meets this guy melchizedek first of all are we saying that name right i don't know but who is this melchizedek who is the king of righteousness the king of salem is he a pre-incarnate christ because he says he's without beginning or end. Or is he somebody else that God brings onto the scene? What does that look like? I don't know. And there t if, if you're like me, there are tons of more questions. And that's just, I mean, that's just Genesis we're talking about. And I still have a lot of questions about how Genesis all plays out. But he here's my question, though. There are some things in Scripture that you just kind of go, okay, how does, how does that work out? But I think there are things in the Scripture that, that are actually really plain, really straightforward. And the question is, are we waiting to fully get it or understand things before we believe, before we obey? I mean, things like, you should not murder. You shouldn't steal. You shouldn't commit adultery. Not covet your neighbor's anything. To love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Everything you have. To love your neighbor as yourself. These things are straightforward. They're not always easy. But here's the thing. Just because we don't fully get something or understand something, that doesn't give us the right to withhold our obedience to response to what godly has clearly said. And here's, here's what I want you to hang your hat on today. Okay? 
We should worry more about what we do understand in God's Word than what we don't understand or what is not clear. We should worry about obeying and responding to what God has clearly told us in His Word than what we don't fully understand or is clear yet. As a race, unfortunately, we have a bad track record of second-guessing God, of holding Him suspect if we don't understand it. If it doesn't line up with our life experience, sometimes we decide to ignore it or, or put it aside. In the end, we find ourselves in a precarious place. Today, Jesus is going to tell a parable about a man who's been exposed to what God's Word has clearly said. And he's going to tell this parable to a, a group of people who are holding Jesus and his own word suspect. And he's going to paint a portrait of a man that the world might envy. His listeners would envy. We might envy. But in the end, it was ultimately listening to what God has made plain. So, if you have your Bibles, you might want to crack them up, crack them up, crack them open. Maybe the Bible makes you crack up. Um, crack them open to uh, Luke chapter 16. And we're going to take a look at a parable that Jesus tells about a man who we would say is living the dream, if you will. Unfortunately, it turns into a nightmare. So we'll see what God has for us today. So we're in Luke chapter 16, verse 19 through 31. Luke 16, 19 through 31. Jesus said, there was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came to lick his sores. When the time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried in, in Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. And he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in the water to cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides this, between us and you is a great chasm that has been set in place, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warm them so that they will not also come into this place of torment. And Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said. But if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to them, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Let me pray for us, and then we can dive into God's Word today. 
So first of all, Heavenly Father, you are the living God who spoke creation into being. You're the God for whom nothing is too difficult. You're the God who sent your Son, the Lord Jesus, to redeem a wayward people. You allowed him to die in our place and then rose him from the dead. And our Lord Jesus, even what you say in rebuke is said in love. So would you open the eyes of our hearts to see what you have to say to us. Help us to see it, to understand it, and respond in obedience, Lord. For it's your good word, and it's for our good. So Lord, do your work in hearts today. And I pray that, again, if there's somebody here who does not know you, Lord Jesus, you would open his or her eyes, that they may respond, repent, and become yours by faith. Lord Jesus, it's in your precious name I pray these things. Amen. So, we're kind of picking up where we were last week. Jesus is addressing some Pharisees who scoffed at him. These Pharisees are men who think they know God's Word. They're men who think they are keeping God's Word. But Jesus takes them to task. Because effectively, they're looking for loopholes to do whatever they want. He takes them to task in verse 14 for being people who serve money rather than God. Because they love money more than God. It's idolatry. He also accosts them in verse 18 about the practice of Marriage and divorce to marry another. They're not being faithful to their spouse or to their God. And again, there are people who are looking to look good before men as they adopt this world's values. This is what Jesus says about them at the end of verse 14. You are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others. But God knows your hearts. That's important. God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. And then last week in verses 16 and 17, Jesus is saying, look, the kingdom of God is here. It's being preached. It's being proclaimed. And the next verse he says, and he says that it is coming forcefully upon people coming forcefully upon people. That means that it's being forced upon people, but you're being caused to deal with it. The kingdom of God is here. What are you going to do with it? What are you going to do with that king and its kingdom? So from here, this is where Jesus picks up. Again, Jesus, I think, is gently rebuking his enemies, rebuking those who are against him. And he tells a parable, really, that are two men in contrast. We've already read it. You've listened to it. But first of all, there's a contrast between a certain rich man. We don't have his name. I'm just going to call him Rich. Okay? Richie Rich. And a, a poor man named Lazarus. Lazarus is a, is, a, is a variable of the word Eleazar, the name Eleazar, which means God helps. And it doesn't seem like God is helping so much in this story, but we'll see how that works out. 
First of all, there's a contrast in their riches or their resources. The rich man is dressed in purple. Now, that may not mean much to us. I see a lot of people dressed in purple today. That's awesome. In fact, that was my favorite color when I was a kid, but that's another story. But here's the thing. Purple in those days was the color of royalty. And to get purple cloth was a painstaking process. You had to take these sea snails and extract the ink that they would generate. It was not an easy thing. He's also dressed in fine linen. This was painstaking work to make this fine linen very, very, very fine in a, in a loom. It wasn't rough hewn. It was very fine. So both of these materials were, you know, it took painstaking efforts, a lot arduous process, and they were expensive. This was the finest money could buy. It's probably what you would wear on a festival day. But this man wore it every day. On contrast, you've got Lazarus. And the scripture doesn't really tell us what he's wearing. Most likely it's, it's clothes that are worn, torn, and filthy. But what it does say that he's dressed in is sores, ulcers on his skin. This man is a paragon of, of neglect, either self-neglect or, I don't know, maybe he's got you know bed bugs. Who knows what's infesting his skin. But he is a pitiful creature. He's not fully protected. He's diseased. The rich man, he lived in luxury every day, it says. Literally, the Greek says, he made good cheer every day in splendor. Every day was a party. You know, you'd kill a fatted calf for a a big event. That was his daily existence. That's how this man was living. He was living large. And maybe, you know, people think, man, it, it must be good to live like that. Probably the Pharisees were saying, I wish I lived like that. In contrast, Lazarus, he's dropped at this rich man's gate, which means he has a hard time getting himself around, period, for the most part. He's probably injured, crippled, or sick. And what he longs for to eat is what falls from this rich man's table. He'd love to go dumpster diving in this man's trash, just to eat what, what the scraps were. The problem is he can't get in. He's cut off by a gate. He doesn't have access. He's literally dying at this man's gate. He languishes away. And the, and the end comment is that, the, that the, even the dogs licked his sores. Now what does that mean? Maybe from a Western standpoint where we, we think well of dogs, it's like at least the dogs were showing him sympathy. <laughs> at least the dogs were trying to take care of him versus what this rich man was doing. But you have to understand also in, in Hebrew culture, dogs were looked at as unclean animals. And perhaps the thought was that Lazarus is such a pitiful state that his friends are the dogs, the mongrels that work their way on the outskirts of town. This is how he is viewed by just general Hebrew society, Jewish society. It's a matter of perspective. 
So, in this matter of perspective, there are two things going on here. Remember, this is a Jewish setting. This is the audience Jesus is preaching to. These are the assumptions that Jesus makes over his audience. So number one, there are many commands in the law of God, in the prophets, about taking care of the poor. Multiple, and I'm just going to give you a quick sample size. That if a man becomes poor, you should help your countrymen. Leviticus 25, 35. When you're gleaning your field, don't glean the edges. If you drop something, let it stay there. That's for the poor. That's for the widows. That's for the beggars. That's for the orphans. Exodus 23, 35. Leviticus 19, 10. And there should be no poor among you, is what God says to his, his old covenant people. Don't be tight-fisted. Deuteronomy 15, 4, 7, and 11. Later on in the prophets, Micah 6, 8. Probably many of you can quote this. He has shown you, oh man, what is good, what the Lord requires of you, that you should act justly, that you should love mercy, that you should walk humbly with your God. Then the second greatest commandment, Leviticus 19.18, talking about loving your neighbor. Listen to this. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. You know what that means? That means your neighbor might be a jerk. That means your neighbor might have done something unkind to you. That means your neighbor might have done something harmful or hurtful to you. Don't hold a grudge. Don't, don't take revenge. Love them as you love yourself. It's plain. It's clear. It's self-explanatory. It's not easy. But that's plain. It's clear. And this rich man knew this. By, by Lazarus being at this rich man's gate, he was, by proximity, his neighbor. He's right there. If you ever leave your property, he's right there. He's next door. How well was this rich man loving Lazarus? So you've got that. You've got the perspective of God. You've got the perspective of Scripture. But then you have the perspective of kind of pop culture in Jewish society. See, there was a belief among Jews, especially those who are more well-to-do, that God's favor on your life, how pleased He is with you, has a direct correlation with your prosperity. If you're living, having a prosperous life, God must be blessing you. After all, Abraham pleased God and God blessed him. So if you're doing well prosperity-wise, you must be living right. And again, the Pharisees, they loved money. So it was a temptation to make a correlation. Man, the wealthy God must really love them. In contrast, you've got the poor. If you're diseased, if you're sick, if you're having misfortune, if you're disabled, you must have sin in your life. 
God must have his hand against you. You must be cursed. You're getting probably what you deserve. It's a rumor as old as the book of Job. It's as recent during that period as Jesus and his disciples walking by a blind man and them saying, who sinned? Him or his parents? And Jesus says, neither. But this man's here to show the glory of God in John chapter 9. But I'm telling you, this is how people viewed Lazarus. And he was at the gate. And if you look at the Bible, the gate is a place of settling business, of setting judgment and justice. The thought was, this man's at the gate, he's getting what he deserves. So Lazarus doesn't have a very good, he's, he does, they're not viewing him in a, in, a, in a good light, if you will. It's better to be like rich. Because that's who God is really pleased with. But all this reality, all this changed when both men lost their lives. When both men died. We get to verse 23. We see Lazarus. It says he was carried away by the angels. We don't know whether his body was buried. We don't know if he was just left there as refuse. But he was carried away by God's messengers. And he was taken to Abraham's side, to Abraham's bosom. Anyone you grow up singing the song, Rock of My Soul in the Bosom of Abraham? Anyone grow, grow up singing that song? Just maybe a California thing, I don't know. Becky, good, thanks for raising your hand there. This is what he's talking about. is being drawn close to the man who pleased God, and the rock of my soul ultimately would be Jesus, but being drawn close to the man who believed God and was reckoned to him as righteousness. Lazarus is accounted with the righteous, if you will. This is his eternal destiny. In some way, God was his help. He has right standing forever. On the other hand, the rich man, he was honored by men. He was buried, but he finds himself waking up in Hades, in torment, having a soul thirst where he's, he's desperate. And somehow he sees Abraham, and he sees Lazarus by his side, and he calls out to him, Father Abraham, send Lazarus to dip his finger in the water and quench my burning tongue. Come, somehow, bring some relief. Now, some commentators, you know, I do a little research here before I, I preach these messages. Some commentators said, well, this is just evidence of this man's sense of entitlement. He still saw Lazarus as his servant even in, in Hades. I think that's more than I know. Honestly, I think he was just desperate in his torment. He's looking for any sort of relief here. And so he calls out to Abraham. And Abraham, he, he calls him very kindly, my, my son. 
But here's the more important thing. This is what Jesus, I think, is trying to help us see here. Somehow, this rich man during his life deceived himself. He deceived himself that everything was going to be okay when this life was over. Because obviously I'm blessed of God. I'm rich, right? That's what the society says. I'm living right. God's blessing me. And number two, I got a great spiritual pedigree. I'm a son of Abraham. I'm one of the chosen people. But this is what John the Baptist was trying to warn people about as Jesus was coming on the scene. John the Baptist says this, And John said to the crowds, this is Luke chapter 3, verse 7 through 9, John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, I'd like me to start the sermon out like that, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees. For every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Let me ask you, what are you banking on? What are you putting your hope in? What are you putting your confidence in? When this life is over and you stand before the living God. I attended Berean. Okay. Great. But do you know the Lord of Berean? And it's not Nathan Brand. I'm an American. So what? So what? You see, the rich man found that his riches and resources failed him. He found that his pedigree had failed him. Because in order to actually be a true son or daughter of Abraham, it means to have the faith of Abraham. This is what the Apostle Paul is saying in Galatians. Chapter 3, verses 7 through 9. Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. The scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Folks, as I know my genealogy, I don't think I've got any Jewish blood in me. But I have a Jewish Savior who has made me his own, who has made me, if you will, a child of Abraham. Sadly, for this rich man, there's going to be no relief Abraham says, look, you received the good things in your life, and Lazarus received bad things. And by the way, you did nothing about it, even though you knew God's law. And now Lazarus is comforted, and you are suffering. And by the way, there's a chasm between us that's set by God, and 
I can't come to you. You can't come to me. It's set. And I think what Jesus is trying to teach us here is that our eternal destiny is set by the faith choices we make on this side of heaven. There are no do-overs. When your life is done, you will either be counted with the righteous or counted with the sinners. And all that makes the difference in how you put, what you put your faith in. I think also we need to understand that this is not teaching that the poor go to heaven and the rich go to hell. Okay, Just in case you're wondering about that, this is not what's being taught here. Abraham himself, who seems to be in, in, in paradise or in heaven, is actually was a wealthy man himself. What's being taught here is that God's ways are opposite of what worldly thinking or pop culture thinks. Rather, how we respond to what God has revealed about himself makes all the eternal difference. And this leads to the last, the last thing, which I call revelation. The rich man makes a request of Abraham, verse 27. And he said, he answered, I beg you then, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so they will not also come into this place of torment. I look at this as kind of a Christmas carol, right? Kind of the reverse of Bob Marley. Bob Marley, Jacob Marley, sorry. (laughs) My youth coming out there, all right. So Jacob Marley, right, who was a terrible sinner, and he comes back to warn Ebenezer Scrooge. In this case, you've got Lazarus, who was a poor saint, and comes back to warn the rich man's brothers. But Abraham's answer is this. They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. And what he was saying is, look, God has not been secretive about what he requires. He's not been secretive about what he desires. Again, that you love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That you love others as yourself, not because they deserve it, because because you are mine. And that you take your stuff, use your stuff, and use that to do both to love me with all you have, and to love others as yourself. God's been really plain about that. He's been real straightforward about it. But the rich man retorts, No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. You hear what he's saying ultimately? God, your word is not enough. It's not enough. We need something more. There are too many questions. God, you somehow need to prove yourself. Do a miracle. To shock us. To get our attention. That'll cause my brothers to believe what Moses said is true. And folks, sometimes I think we're just like that. I think we're just like that. We're saying, God, you got to do something miraculous 
to help this person or to help me believe that it's true, that you're true. And I will tell sometimes God is actually really gracious in doing some things. But here's the thing. Oftentimes we are making God jump through our hoops, making him prove himself. And I will tell you this, a faith that is built upon God making, making God do miracles is a faulty faith. If you look at the children of Israel as they leave Egypt, they see plenty of God's hand, but they still don't believe him. We get to the middle of the king's and you've got a, a prophet, Elijah, who calls down fire and slays 450 prophets of Baal. And the people, for a moment, say, the Lord, he is God. But then they still don't believe him. You've got Jesus, who is God incarnate, the Messiah, showing himself, showing his power before the Pharisees, before many people. And they're still saying, do it again. Do something more. And folks, if we're honest, if you're a praying person and you've seen God answer prayer, aren't we sometimes saying at that, at that moment when we see it, God, I'll never doubt you ever again. But then the next crisis comes, right? Are, are, you, are you there? Are you really there? Yes, he is. He wants to be trusted. Seeing God's miraculous hand is no guarantee of belief. And it often degenerates into what have you done for me lately, God? Or we explain away what we've seen. You know what's interesting? We're going to get to the end of this gospel. And Jesus is going to come alongside two of his disciples who are on their way to Emmaus. And you know what? He doesn't immediately say, it's me! I'm risen! You know what he does? He says, don't you get it? Don't you see in the Law and the Prophets how the, the Messiah had to suffer and die and rise from the dead? And Jesus takes them through that. And then at the very end, when he blesses the, the food, and their eyes are opened. You see, God is faithful to his word. He keeps it. And he takes it seriously. And we should too. And Jesus, again, I think is just redemptively helping some people who think they've got God's word wired to see, no, you don't. Help them to see that they're ignoring it. And maybe ultimately helping them to see you really can't keep it. You really can't do all that you think you can and keeping God's word. And maybe help them to see their need for someone who actually could. Because again, Jesus is bringing the kingdom of God. And that kingdom is not a physical manifestation of a city. It is a, a kingdom that takes its manifestation in hearts and changes hearts and changes eternal destiny. And that's what Jesus is trying to point to in the whole big context of this. So, application to us. There are Lazaruses among us, folks. 
There are people that God puts in our pathway. Do we love mercy? Are we willing to come alongside of them? Are we going to extend to them some of the mercy that we've been extended? Or will we ignore them and make excuses? That's kind of the short application. But more directly, and I think more generally what Jesus is trying to get to, are you and I responding to the straightforward things that God has revealed to us about Him in His Word? What He's made plain to us doesn't mean we have everything figured out, but when He says, you know, love your neighbor as yourself, when He says, bless those who curse you, when He says, pray for your enemies, when he says, take up your cross today and follow me, he really means it. Or are we holding back for one reason or another? Maybe because we don't see how that's going to work out okay. Maybe we're making excuses that we need more. We need more understanding. We need more clarity. And, and let me say this, just as a, as a caveat, it's okay to ask questions. It's okay to say, okay, how does this work? Because in asking questions, it helps you bring understanding. And I'll tell you what, when I first started following the Lord, I had a trainload of questions. I've answered a lot of those, and now I've got a trainload more. Okay? But that doesn't excuse me from following what I know is true. Okay? And it shouldn't, it shouldn't stop you from doing that either. Maybe we're trying to make God prove himself. Come on, God, if this word is true, then do this then do this. Or maybe just we just don't want to, okay? Let's just be honest. Uh, eh, I don't want to do that. This is where we need to repent. Where we need to turn back to God. And here's what I see in the Scriptures, folks. And here's what I've seen in my own life. Is that God reveals Himself. God makes Himself more known God makes himself more active to those people who take God as word and take that step of faith in obeying him. When Abraham is called, what happens? He says, go to the land I'll show you and I'll, and I'll bless you. Okay, that's about all he gets, right? And God reveals himself more and more and more along the way. But if you say, no, 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 God, no, you need to prove yourself. And we keep doing that along the way. You know what, God, after a while, just goes, okay, you really don't believe me. You really don't believe me. So when he talks about us loving our neighbor, when he talks about us giving to him and his kingdom and to others, when he talks about us forgiving as we have been forgiven, when he talks about us repenting, turning back to him, he really means it. He really means that. And let's remember again, these words are coming from the Lord Jesus Christ himself. The one who is bringing the kingdom of God. And again, he's telling us there are no do-overs. And here's the, big, the biggest thing I want you to take home today. What are you doing? What are you doing with what God has plainly said and revealed about the Lord Jesus Christ in his word? About his life which he lived.
perfectly, which we could not. About his death, which he lovingly gave up in order that we might be reconciled to him. About his resurrection, which he conquered death and gives us new life. What are you doing about that? What are you doing about the kingdom of God that has come upon you? About a Savior who has come to make us God's own. God, a, a Savior who comes to save us from God's right justice. A Savior who has come to bring the kingdom of God. That's the biggest question of this parable. What are you doing with the Savior who has come to bring the kingdom of God? Have you responded to him? Have you responded to his word that says this? God so loved the world, the cosmos, the broken, hurting world, that he gave his one and only son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. We don't have to be that, that rich man saying, I'm in torment. No, we can have everlasting life. We can be drawn to the rock of our soul in the bosom of Abraham, the Lord Jesus Christ. And for those of us who know him, then we have the great privilege of being the ambassador of that great news. Let's not hold back on that which we know plainly also, okay? Let me pray. And Bobby, will you and the worship team come and close us? Lord Jesus, again, this word is, is here for our good. So I pray that if there's someone who's been holding you at arm's distance, that he or she would open the door of their heart. Say, Lord, forgive me. Lord, I believe in you. I believe in what you've done. Come into my heart. Change me. Make me a new creation. Draw me to yourself that I might have the life that only you give. Eternal life. And that starts on this side of heaven. And for those of us, Lord, who already know you, Lord, would you give us the grace to obey and do what you've asked us to do. Those things that are plain, those things that are evident. Don't let us get stuck on the things we can't figure out quite yet. Lord, you are a great God. You are beyond comprehension. But you have sent your Son to explain who the living God is. And for that, we're grateful. So as we're about to sing, Lord Jesus, let your kingdom come among us. And it's in your name I pray these things. Amen.